Hello everyone, just a real quick one. For those of you that are not connected with me on LinkedIn, you wouldn't have seen my recent announcement about the live podcast event. We've finally got it rebooked back in because we had to cancel due to COVID. It's on the 27th of October. Over 100 recruitment professionals are going to join us on the evening. There's just under 50 tickets left. It's going to be a really cool, unique networking opportunity. I booked out a really quite cool bar in Oxford Circus, the whole sort of basement of that bar. We've got a fantastic panel and we're going to be talking about the state of recruitment. What the hell have we learned in the last 18 months and what are we going to be taking um, into next year to make sure that we absolutely smash 2022? Would love to see you there. If you want to grab your ticket, then use the link in the show notes. Uh, When I recorded this, there were 49 tickets left. I'm going to give this a real push over the last week. So confident that they will be gone very soon. I would love to see you face to face. So uh, yeah, if you fancy a a good evening of learning, connecting, meeting like-minded people, then come join us and I'll see you on the 27th. I'll let you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. My name is Hisham Azuz. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Hogg, who is the Managing Director of Wallace Hind. Matt started his recruitment career in 2000 and started his career with the High Street Agency in which he progressed his career from trainee to branch manager. Then in 2004, he joined Wallace Hind, where he is obviously still currently, and he's progressed from consultant all the way to partner before actually successfully achieving a management buyout three months ago. So Matt now is in charge of the strategic growth of the company as he looks to carry on the brand, but also build a new chapter. So there's currently 20 people within the business. They're based in Northampton. And Matt has big plans to uh, take the business forward, grow the uh, company. Thank you for joining me on the podcast, Matt. Hey, you're welcome. That was a belting intro. It's better than, uh, better than my wife knows me. So thanks for that. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, um, loads, loads for us to go into. But yep. where we always like to start is, in your opinion, what characteristics and traits do you feel really make up a highly successful recruitment consultant? For me, it always came down to two very, very basic things, uh, and and that's purely resilience uh, and determination to keep going. It's in our job we say no, not we get told no, and we say no ninety nine percent of the time. So you've you've just got to keep going. If you if you give up too easy, you'll you'll fail in this sector. I mean that can apply to lots, I'm sure, but every good consultant I've ever worked with has just had that single minded determination and the resilience to keep going when it's tough. Did you have that from the very beginning of your recruitment career, do you think? I'd like to think so. You don't, I imagine you'd have to ask some of the mentors and some of the people that I, that I worked with, but I was lucky to have some really high caliber uh, individuals, or I thought they were high caliber, that just said snippets to me very early, which I still use today. I still use it when I'm coaching and training people today because it made sense to me. And it, you know, I think as soon as that you have that light bulb moment or, or it just drops and you get it, it, it makes it a lot easier. If you know, if you've been through some, not hard times, cause that makes it sound like, you know, we're not getting shot at in, you know, we're not in the armed <laughs> forces or anything. So, but yeah, that, you know, that resilience is absolutely key for me. So why I was really keen to, to speak to you, which also we've discussed before we started recording this was your journey with Wallace Hind and the sort of recent management buyout that, 
and that journey that you've been on. I think a lot of people listen to this will be within a recruitment business where if they progress their recruitment career, that that may be something that's on the table and maybe a carrot that's been dangled in front of them by the, the owners of the, com- the company that they work for. And then also at the same time, there'll be people listen to this that have their own recruitment business that would see this as either like a great option for them to actually sell the company or an, an option that they actually really like the idea of because the story can continue. Uh, and, and they've given their leadership team a great opportunity to to carry on with the business. So we're definitely going to like go into that in detail. So, but where I just wanted to very quickly start was just early days of your recruitment career. So you started in a, in a high street environment. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I walked into their business one day, sold them some ad copy and uh, the branch manager turned around to me and said, oh, ever thought about doing recruitment? I had no idea what recruitment was. I'd worked for agencies when I was a kid, you know, stuffing envelopes, factories. I thought that's all <laughs> what agency was. And at the time, I thought, yeah, why not? I mean, it's somewhat different. I don't know about today's recruiters, but certainly I think a lot of my generation of recruiters, that's how we got into it. You know, we went to register with a recruiter or you sold something to them and someone somewhere went, oh, you could do this. <laughs> so yeah, and, and you know, I started in, it was a pretty big um, high street. They're not around anymore. They um, they got purchased and then sold and, and a couple of times. But yeah, I, um, I I really enjoyed it. It was fast paced. It was just the people element was was what hooked me. Yeah. So let, let's just, I guess, if we can, try and maybe try and condense those first four years, like what, obviously you clearly what, what's, what's always happened that looks like is you've uh, really taken the opportunity to progress your career. Um, it looks like obviously you've worked in, in two companies, but both times you've really been someone that hasn't stayed stagnant and sort of taken opportunities internally. If that's, yeah, like becoming a branch manager, becoming a director, these things. So like how, what, what were some of the things that you were talking about? Some of the things that you learned from other people that you still use now, what were some of the things that you learned in those four years that have really remained or stuck with you? Do you think that could be interesting for people to, to learn from or, or hear about? Oh, you're making me give away my trade secrets. <laughs> Come and work for me and I'll share everything. We're growing. Yeah, best best advert ever. Uh, but it was, you, you weren't the credibility to gain the freedom to have a go. I was never afraid of having a go. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday. I took my first ever job on on my second day. I had no idea what I was doing uh, and called this company. They said, oh yeah, we're looking for, I can't remember what it was. And I said, I passed my handset to my branch manager and said, oh, yeah, let my secretary take the details and then I'll come back to you. Who, do, who does that? It was bizarre. We I can't remember if we filled the job or not, but uh, she gave me a clip. That was when you were allowed to get a clip around the ear, by the way, as well. So um, she said, don't ever call me your secretary. But it was a phrase that I use a lot uh, and uh, that I was told back then that I use now is, if the marriage breaks down, you don't blame the vicar. Okay, tell us more. And as recruiters, we are putting two people in a room. You know, we can't take any credit. If I placed you in a job and you were amazing, I can't take any credit for how amazing you are post-placement. That's down to you and the company. And if it fails after nine months, 12 months, I'm not taking you to work every day. I'm not coaching you, training you. So that phrase of, you know, if the marriage breaks, it's, it's the two people in the marriage that make it work, not the vicar. You know, the vicar's pretty important all the way through, but ultimately, day one together, you know, you're there. And, and that just stuck with me to understand the role that I played as, as a part of, of the recruitment process 
And then, then the second thing was, or the second really important thing was, it's not personal. It's never personal. You know, people don't want it. People are saying no to you, not because they know you and your family and your beliefs and your morals. They're saying no because they haven't got any vacancies or they don't want that job. It's, it, you know, this is people's careers. And again, as soon as that clicked, you know, this is someone's career you're talking about, you know, it, it made a big difference and it, I stopped taking things so personally. So, so I hear, I hear that. I think that I'm sure you've seen this show up in people that joined um, what is hind but like what what's your advice for people that maybe are finding themselves maybe they might, might be early on in their career and they're finding themselves taking a lot of the things personally that person accepting a counter offer or that person not showing up for an interview like what what's your advice to me if you find if i'm in your team and you're just seeing these things really affect me and take it personally i know it sometimes doesn't just happen overnight but no. what would your advice be And it can be, be lots of little things and, and they yeah. just n- niggle away at you. Well, the, what we can do is, is look at your process, look at what you're doing. Can you do everything that's in your control? If you can control the things that are in your control, fantastic. Unless you are picking Dave up and taking him to his interview and dropping him off, you can't control if he goes. You know, we've, uh, those of us that have been in recruitment a long time, the, the volume of grannies and aunties' funerals that have happened on the day of an interview for reasons for people not to attend is, is incredible. But you've just got to, you know, this is someone's career. If you can look back at, did you check the interest of the job? Did you call, call them to wish them luck? Did you know that they had other things going on? And if someone takes a counter offer, they feel it's right for them, not mm. personal to you. If you've done your job properly, then you can hold your head up high. I mean, that was one of the, we switched to a retain model 10 years ago. And that was one of the big things that also helped people not take it personally. Because in the nicest possible way, you get the job, the next candidate gets the job. I still get paid. So I'm not, Yeah, yeah. I don't have, I'm not biased on whether you get it or someone else because I'm, I've been paid. So I'd say if you can, if you haven't done something that's in your control, own that make sure you don't do that. Don't make the same mistakes over and over again. If it's physically outside of your control, accept that it's outside of your control because otherwise this job will drive you mad. Yeah, no, I think that's... And and I think that the sooner you can have uh, cultivate that mindset, the better. Because I think, yeah, that whole idea of like, like you said, being willing to look in the mirror and go, right, what... Firstly, understanding what parts of the process do I control or that. And then once you understand that, it's then like, okay, let, let's actually, obviously one of the, um, the guys that we have involved with recruitment mentors, one of the sessions that he done, which you uh, is probably quite common, is he, he just calls it like the post-mortem of like a, a deal or a deal that f- fell out. And then you, like you said, you break down that process and go, right, what was on my shoulders that I didn't maybe do so well with or I can improve? That's what you should be focusing on rather than this, this such and such has happened, which was out of your control. The only thing I'd say to people is do the post-mortem on every campaign because when it's gone well, what have we done well? We focus as, as sales professionals, people focus on the negative far too much. You know, we've got a 95% success rate with filling our vacancies. Every single company I pitch to go, oh, what about the 5%? Now I've got to come back to that. But my point is, if you can look through a process and think, oh, do you know what? I got away with one there because I forgot to call him, call him or her, or, you know, I forgot to call the candidate to wish them luck, or I forgot this, I forgot that. It makes you makes make sure you don't, make those mistakes next time. So post-mortem the bad stuff, absolutely. Post-mortem the good stuff. Let's pat ourselves on the back when we get it right. Because like I say, 99% of the time, it's 
no, we've got no vacancies. No, I'm not interested. No, I'm sorry, I can't progress you, Hashim. You're not right for the job. There's this one vacancy. And if you get 400 applicants, you're saying no 399 times. <laughs> no, it's, it's a really good point. Yes, it's a, it's a great thing to be doing on a consistent basis. Look at what you did well. We didn't, it's, again, you're then cultivating like a reflective mindset. Like most high performers that I've interviewed, they they sort of incorporate this in their weekly, monthly sort of reviews of like, right, what, what has been working, what hasn't been working? Because it can be very easy to get complacent, do what has been working, but and then you're just like, I'm going to keep trying to do the things that have always served me. Do you get what I mean? Absolutely. So I think it also sort of encourages that self-awareness and sort of self-reflective mindset, which most high performers have or are willing to do. Most training programs will talk about a reflective element and don't focus on, you know, there's elements of breaking it down, but ultimately what happened? You know, and that's the post-mortem thing that your colleague's talking about. What ha- Factually, what happened? And then you can say, what was what, what was good? What was bad? What can I improve? What was out of my control? We've all made placements where it's, you know, you've thought, crikey, how the hell did that happen? You know, it makes up for the ones that you you absolutely think that you've you've nailed everything and something goes wrong, something out of your control. So let's let's take this into what is time then. So really, really excited to sort of dig into this MBO journey. So let, let's just sort of frame this up for people. So you joined the business in 2004. What did the company look like when, when you joined it? This podcast is proudly partnered with Vincherry, the recruitment operating system for your front, middle, and back office. So I recently recorded a podcast with James Layton from the Anderson James Group, which will be out really soon. And as part of our conversation, we got into the topic of the best tools that he's invested in so far in his business journey. And guess what? Vincherry was up there and also Sourcebreaker was. But in this very short snippet, you're going to hear why James is so happy to be a Vincherry customer. And look, who's better to tell you about their product and why you should be considering Vincherry as your operating system partner than their customers themselves. Here's what James had to say. We implemented Vincherry right in the heat of lockdown. We decided that it was the right time. The old system that we use was clunky. I'm a real, real, real believer of Vincherry as a system. I must have recommended 20 people to Vincherry over the years because I think they're going to change the game. And I can say that wholeheartedly, having used Bullhorn and another product, I can say that Vincherry is number one in that world for a growing recruitment business because it's intuitive, it's got intelligence suites, it's got everything that you probably need to... Yeah, it's a whole operating is. system, not just a CRM, is it? Is this the whole point? Yeah, it's, and it's, yeah. it's brilliant. And they're brilliant. Like, you know, LOEs and the team there, they're, they're great. And they're always there if you need them for anything. Wallace Hind has always been a, a, a boutique recruiter. The guys that set it up, you know, were ex, you know, they all work for, for big national, a big national recruiter that, again, people of a certain generation would know those that, those names aren't around anymore. So, and, and they just thought this can be done better you haven't got to work till nine o'clock at night. You can earn a good, you can earn good money, provide great service, but you can go home at five o'clock. And particularly in Northampton, again, we, you know, we're going back sort of 15, 20 years, but you know, before job boards were you know, a huge thing, if you wanted a job, you, you either went through a recruiter or you looked in the paper on a Thursday or a Sunday or, or whatever it was. So, you know, Wallace Hind had a fantastic reputation locally you know if you come up again i used to come up against them all the time and lose because they were better uh, they were more credible better experienced and and they were just always for me this business that were up on a hill and i always thought if i left the company i was with 
I was never going to go to another high street because it's just the same job in a different brand. I had a, I, I had a, I have a 22 year old daughter now I'm, that I'm very proud of, but um, yeah, so I had her, I was very young and I, I was finding that she was in, she was asleep when I got up in the morning, she was asleep by the time I got home at night and I was missing out on, on her growing up. So uh, I thought I was never going to go to one of the cities. Um, so I joined this place and it was, it, it was like a, my eyes open to what, recruitment is because i was filling credit control jobs and receptionists and call centers and just all different you know, I stuff the, i did the where well, it was commercial high street you know so the biggest salary i think i ever worked on and again we're going back to 2000 2004 yeah yeah so obviously, yeah, was, inflation was, yeah yeah, and yeah the biggest salary i'd ever worked on was 25k and i thought i was the dogs watch <laughs> in the office um the first the first job i i worked on at wallace heim was a 42k national sales manager and i didn't realize this because the info was wrong in the crm system but uh, i got the company to travel uh, travel over from ireland to interview here in northampton and i had candidates travel from wales birmingham i sort of four candidates travel from all over the country here because that was it was the way i was that they taught me to do it i said no the clients come here to interview candidates come here to interview you don't go out anywhere and it was like almost this bravado it almost snobbery. It wasn't snobbery, but it almost came, no, 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 no. These guys need us more than we need them. So they should come to us. We're the professionals. So, oh, okay. And I just followed that. And as soon as you start pitching and selling that in that way, companies, they buy into you and believe you. Mm. And they're right. So let's just paint the picture then. So how how big was the company when you joined it? Like what, uh, what did it look like, roughly? It was probably doing a, a turnover of around a, a million pounds. We've only ever been one site. We employed, I'm going to, I mean, you're testing my gray matter. Yeah, yeah. we, we won't hold guess, you to this, but like roughly. I, I, I'd guess it may be, maybe similar numbers, probably maybe 20, 22 people. You know, I remember okay. them saying, you know, we want to get to what they, it, when I joined their, their dream was to have 2 million turnover and, and 20 billion consultants and then support staff. And it always felt like it always felt like a, a you know, a, a reach because it was doubling their turnover. It was doubling the stuff that they'd done before. Okay. How many uh, founders were there? How many people started the business? Three. So three original founders uh, started the business back in 92 and they had a silent partner um, who was in fact, Mr. Hind. No, Mr. Hind was just... Oh, Mr. So, Hind, sorry. Mr. Okay, Hind, got yeah. it. Got no, it, got so it, got he, it. So he invested <laughs> half the money and the other three guys and uh, whether they'll, you know, they'll see this or they'll be on golf courses or Marbella or wherever now, <laughs> um, were, were John Gowan, uh, Jerry Bell and Mike Horsley. And Mike still, Mike and Jerry actually, to be fair, are still involved in the business. Um, but they, they, their original idea apparently was GBH recruitment. Now those three initials stand for something else. So I'm not sure, um, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure that would have been. So they, the story sure was they, they, yeah, they looked at looked at dictionary. You know what what goes really well with Hind, and they, they came up with with Wallace Hind uh, and, and another colleague who joined very shortly. Sort of added the selection because you know we we're not bums on seats. We're selection. We select people. It's it's going out and finding them, and and find, and, and it's a process, not a, you know not a churn, not a not a battery hen thing. So it became Wallace Hind selection. Yeah. So that that's what the business looked like when you sort of first joined. Yeah. So let, let, let's just go into the, the timeline of this. Let's just go into this MBO journey then, because I think that's what okay. people will be most, most interested in. And I think what's also really exciting for Wallace High now and, and moving forward. 
So that's where it was when you first joined. When did you start first, I guess, start realizing or becoming aware that this was a business that you could potentially in the future, a part owner of, or however it like, when did that first like, cause obviously you've been at the company for over a decade. So like when, yeah. when did it first start? Cause I think some, some people will have these aspirations. Some won't. I think a lot of people will, will have this carrot dangled in front of them. If that's like an employee share, share scheme or like the, like that's a big sale, right? It's like, Matt, you can come join Wallace Hind, be part of the journey. You can end up owning part of the company, et cetera. So like, when did this first start becoming a potential reality for you? Do you think how long ago? But we we do that, by the way. Uh, that's something that that we do, and and the business is always done, and and I'll absolutely pass forward. So, I guess in terms of the actual MBO, we got to twenty. We were absolutely flying in in two thousand and nine, and then got smashed by the the global crisis, and it took a few years to to get that back. But probably twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, we hit that number of staff. We hit sort of two million pounds rather than three founders doing little bits, you know, an, an MD had been, uh, one of them stepped up as, as MD. So we became more professional. We had training and, and that's really, uh, to that point, because I was, I'm 10, 12 years younger than, than the founding partners. I suppose I always said, I want the next step. I want to be a part of it. I, if you pay me more, great, but I'm not interested in that. I want to be a part of the strategic development and the stuff. And, so 2015, 2016, we started talking about exit strategy. You know, these guys are getting into their mid fifties and they wanted to, you know, call it, when can, when can we call it a day and realize the the 30 years hard work? So what did that conversation look like? Was it, was it down the pub and we we're talking like candidly? Was it like quite professional? Did you sort of bring it up? Uh, no, it was, uh, I, I'd say it was a mixture. You know, we were sat in, in the boardroom, at the boardroom sounds very grand. We're in a, a beautiful, <laughs> we are in a beautiful vicarage, but we're in the largest room that we have that we christened <laughs> the boardroom because Wallace Heim was set up as a partnership. So there are actually... When I first became a partner, there were 10 partners right? and, okay. and only 25 staff. And that's when, it, it certainly wasn't me, but I'm pretty sure in one of those meetings, somebody sort of talked about exit strategies because they'd always talked about maybe selling at some point, but nothing serious. And that started me thinking, started the MD thinking, and, and then the very next meeting, we said, right, well, our exit strategy is X, you know, and, and it went around the room, how long people wanted to stay, whether they'd be interested in taking it on, how would they feel about a sale, what that would look like. The three founders obviously had their own conversations because they had a bigger stake. Uh, and we took the decision that in one of those meetings, took the decision that they would offer the opportunity for anybody to put their hat in the ring to do an MBO that, that was from the partnership. Yeah, yeah, that was a partner. Yeah, and they were going to invite. They they paid a um, a commercial sales business recruitment specialist, commercial sales business to come in, audit the company, and take us to market. Myself and a colleague sat down, looked at it, um, felt that we were the right age, the right experience. We had some good credibility in the business, had some had loads of drive and passion to where we wanted to take it. Because the founders will openly admit, when they got to two million, when they got to that goal, it was like. Yay, we've done it. And and you got me and a, a couple of other people. Brilliant, what's next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, nothing's next. We've done it. I, well, 
I'm 40. What do you mean? I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got more to do. So, so okay. you know, kind of that that helped as well. But the the you know the team here are brilliant. You know, but I obviously never done an MBO before. Worked with yeah. lots of, of clients. So I started talking to HR directors, managing directors, owners, financial directors of businesses that I'd supplied people to, and and people that I trusted. You know, what are the pitfalls of doing this? Where do I start? What's involved? What was? And I got some great advice for some from some people that I trust immensely. And we put okay. a, a plan together and and sat down and started doing the hard graft. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. So, okay, so let let's just break this down a little bit then. So, so that was around the, the time, yeah, as you said, you actually started to go on this journey. It's around yep. 2016, as you said. About 2016, then, yeah. 16, yeah, 6th advice. So at that stage, again, just to paint the picture for people, because I want to try and make it just as easy as possible for people to relate or like compare it to where they're at in their teams and stuff. So like, what was the structure then? So are you all completely perm business? Did you do some contract? Is it all permanent? No, we're, so Wallace Hines, 100% perm business. It's split in 2016 and it still is today. It's split 75%. Retained, 25% okay. contingent. You can probably see the most of the, the, the categories that we operate in. So you've got different me, verticals. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, I'll get ahead of myself. But, yeah, different verticals. We have recruiters that specialise. We have, you know, I've always pitched myself as a, as a generalist. I've got more experience in recruiting certain functions than others. But, you know, I've, I've turned my hand to most things over the years. So, yeah, it was 100, 100% perm. Okay, cool. 100% perm. I think the key part there, which I'm interested to find out from you, like how much of an impact it had was the 75% retained piece. So 75% retained work, 25% um, contingent. And then also at that point, uh, you said there obviously two, like the MD and you like were really driving it forward. But at that point, there was what, 10 partners that could also go, go down this path as well, or could have been part of the journey. Yeah. So there were three founding and, and then seven uh, seven, seven sorry. Uh, yeah, but so ten, okay. 10 in total. But the way the percentages worked, you you earn a percentage, or you you could buy in if you wanted to. Once you'd hit a certain criteria of service and right. billings and all the rest of it. Okay. And one, two, three, three of those. So the, so the three founders were were always going to get out. So yeah, it yeah. was from the seven. Three of the seven, um, actually, two of them have been involved since. Yeah, you know, were basically recruitment number one and number four i think so they were in a similar category so we're probably looking to get out so it only left <clears throat> really a few others that were going to drive an mbo you know right. if we had the appetite for it you know so we we sat down as a as a as a four you know and had some pretty frank conversations we'd worked together for a long time and and there was lots of honesty in there which really helped you know and actually as as it turns out so two of the founding partners still here and and, and they'll, they'll be working for a, a, you know, a couple more years at least and then two from the seven are also still here but weren't involved in the mbo so the actual mbo in the end was myself and uh at the time three employees four employees okay got so it. they stepped up yeah yeah before we talk about you going to market and the learnings and stuff like that j- just just to like sort of talk a bit about this early part so in with hindsight if I'm listening to this right now yeah. and the conversation has been happening, it, it started, the founders and owners of the company that I work for have said, an MBO is on the table. We're open to it. Um, we like the idea of it. 
And I'm someone, maybe one out of three, four people who are directors, associate directors. Um, and this is something that me as an associate director of that company, I'm, I'm really excited about and, and I want. So I guess what I'm keen to just get from you is, I know you said there's a lot of honesty, but like in hindsight, if I'm at that sort of stage, what conversations, questions would you be asking, knowing what you know now to my peers, to the owners that you think could, I don't know, j just help move it forward in the right direction or also help shed light on like, is this a reality that that's achievable? I don't know, what are some of the things that people should be asking, finding out that you think is really key at that stage? This podcast is proudly partnered with Sourcebreaker. Now, the other week I had Holly Bird on the podcast that actually uh, uses Sourcebreaker herself. So what I'm going to do is just share with you a very quick snippet on how Sourcebreaker has massively helped Holly get even more out of her business development activity. Now, right now, you might think I don't need to do business development, but trust me, the best recruiters right now are doubling down on business development. They want to have the best jobs to take to the market. And the best recruiters will not let off on building pipeline, building relationships. So being able to save time, easily see what uh, companies are recruiting in your space, um, all in a centralized um, location like Sourcebreaker will be of massive benefit for all of you. So if you still haven't checked out the Sourcebreaker tool, use the link in the show notes, get yourself a no pressure demo and see how it can help you and your teams. But here's Holly sharing how she uses Sourcebreaker and how it's massively helped her with her business development. The way that I use Sourcebreaker to my advantage is, is predominantly on, on the BD side because what it can pull through based on like a Boolean search are a load of job leads that I wouldn't get mm. from just looking on LinkedIn, for example. Or would it take you like million years to find it like go through them or win it so as long as you've got a good boolean on there it pulls through a, a good amount of results mm. that are quite accurate and then you can save them to a pipeline actually on source breaker so it's a good tracking you see it in one place technique as well yeah you can see it in one place you can move it for the process and you can keep mm. a really good log of what you've done what you need to do and it almost like just centralizes all of the information rather than having a spreadsheet a linkedin open yeah, yeah, yeah. written it down on your paper it just brings it all together which makes it a lot more organized the first thing i probably i would have done probably a bit more research into it i was perhaps i got i think i got caught up in the yeah we're gonna do this company. we should do yeah, this yeah, yeah. yeah um there's a lot of work there's a lot of due diligence and if you've not worked in a corporation if you've not been exposed you know again I, i've worked at that point i'd worked for a, a boutique recruiter in a little village that no one's ever heard of for 12 years <laughs> i hadn't been exposed to some of this stuff so you absolutely do your research there's lots of information out there on online have very clear goals about what you want and what you're prepared to give up and negotiate and what you're not and, and that comes down to the people that you're going to do this with Working with somebody as a director is one thing. Working with them as an owner is a different kettle of fish. You gotta be you've got to be transparent and really clear about your priorities. Because if me and you are gonna go into you and I are gonna go into business together, if one of your core values absolutely contradicts one of mine, this isn't gonna work. And this is a conversation we will have never have had. Because we're directors that work in the same business and we have a common goal of being successful. Yeah, you've got a common goal, exactly. So you, you may not have those conversations, but so you, you wouldn't necessary. have those conversations. So 
yeah, they're necessary. You know, looking at the team around you and who you're going to do this with, who's going to play what role and why, and then making sure that that's something that you're prepared to invest 100, 120, 150 hours in outside of your normal job. Because whilst you're doing an MBO, you've still, I'm still an employee. I've still got a partner. I've still got a, a number that I've got to produce. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it opens your eyes. Now it's good advice. Cause I think again, trying to put our shoes in someone that has, has got this idea of owning part of the company they've absolutely grafted in. Like it, it's exciting, right? It's positive. It's something to tell your mates about. I'm going to own this company one day, all these things. And you can get wrapped up in that. But I think obviously the advice that you're giving here, which you obviously have had to learn through challenges or maybe even the hard way is, well, if I was to go back and start it again, like let's have these really honest conversations like now at this very beginning stage. And I think the good thing about that as well is that like, if you're starting to think about who's going to do what, like what our values are, what's important to us, that also makes it even more real um, yeah, when yeah, you're having those conversations. Well- it starts as a pipe dream, right? Who's going to lend me 2 million quid to buy a company? How do I find somebody to lend me 2 million quid to buy a company? Um, The next thing that you have to do is be very real about the price very early. About the price? About the price and about the the commercials of what you're going to do. Yeah, because again, I'm buying the company from you. You, It's no different to buying anything else. You want as much as you can get. I want to pay as little as I can. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's go into this part of the journey then. So we've spoken a bit about like the beginning. So as you said, the obviously founders then obviously got, um, I'm assuming, I don't know if this is common practice, but they then obviously got like an impartial organization to then come in and go, like obviously value the company, basically. Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. And then took us to market. Yeah. And then, and then helped take you to market. Cool. So let's just talk about this, like going to market piece. So just to frame this up. So you are, as you were just saying, so if I'm going to go down this MBO path, we would then have to go to market and find investors, people, companies who are basically going to fund and support you and whoever else is involved in that MBO in purchasing the majority shares or however it's going to be structured from the people that started the company, right? Which is why you're going to market and you're basically looking to raise investment and and get that investment. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So let's just talk about this then. Like where, like how, so how involved were you then if it was a company? Like, was you like, was you pitching to banks? Was you getting in front of PE firms? Like how involved were you? A hundred percent involved. It's, you know, it's, it it was me and a colleague, that, that did all of that. We're leading the MBO. We were the face of it. And then therefore, you know, the, like you say, the banks, we, we pitched to all of the major banks and a couple of the uh, newer ones. We pitched to, we met, I think two PE companies and three VC companies. And then there was, we were introduced to one or two, I think they're called angel investors or or business investors and uh, as well. So, and I'd like okay. to think our first pitch versus our 10th pitch was, uh, was slightly <laughs> right, different. So, um, so let, let's go into, so we'll go into that, but just quickly, because I think it's good for context. I'm not trying to get you to like share everything that's in like all the details and stuff, but I think it would just be good. It'd be a good context. How much was you looking to raise? And this is why getting the price is important. The first couple of meetings, we were looking to raise 2 million. What, and that was too little or too much? When we started to learn more about how those things were structured because two million yeah we'll we'll take two million well we want two million on day one we haven't got two million day one 
well, actually, what number do we want? Does that involve the cash in the back? You know, so it mm. was two million was fine, but it didn't buy the the cash in the bank or the building because that's separate. All right. So now we need two point seven. Oh right, well, we haven't right, but we can't but we can't get two million without the building and the cash in the bank because that's so understanding the price and what's involved before you go pitching. So what did you miss then? I'm because I'm struggling to. I'm we just we made. Obviously. We made too many presumptions through lack right. of knowledge and lack of confirmation about what we needed and what it looked like. And again, you know, the, the guys that we did, the, you know, the, the senior guys, they were also very open. Well, we thought that would just be the case. So as we got more feedback from from partners and, and from banks and, you know, and again, we were very open about the fact and I, I like to think this helped us because we got lots of feedback and support. Actually, I'd say... 70% of the people we pitched to gave us really, really good support. Right. Well, because you said we haven't done this before. It's new to us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you owned that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really. Uh, look, that's, that's important to me in everyday life, right? Whether you're talking to a candidate for the first time or talking to a bank and asking them for 2 million quid, this is my skill set. This is what I know and how I know it. I'm going to, the reason I'm talking to you is because you're an expert. So understanding that, digging, I know about our financials, trying to talk to a non-recruiter about our financials and how it works. They just, they just didn't get it. What happens if you don't fill the vacancy? Well, we, we do. That's what we do. And that's what we've done for 25 years. Yeah, but what if you don't? We, we only get two thirds of the money. Well, what happens if they don't pay that? Well, they do pay that. Here's all the evidence of them paying that. So with, if you're selling a recruiter and you've got lots of temps or lots of contractors, you've got a, a plan that you're selling. Yeah, and those people are in work with perms. It's a lot harder because once you've done your job, that's it. You move on. And yeah, yeah, there were lots of we found lots of challenges. Less so with the with one of the one of the VCs was a, a recruitment specialist, so they got it straight away. And one of the angel investors had done a couple of bits with recruitment, so he got it as well. So that recruitment context helped. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this pitching journey then. Let's talk about because I think because this is this is probably where one of the steepest learning curves is going to be. So you've spoken around the presumptions, the just, yeah, because you haven't done this before, get really under the skin of like, what, how much money do we need to raise and all these types of things. So let, let's just say that we've done that. What what can people, like, what was you, firstly, maybe, what was you like most surprised by when you did some of these first early, like, uh, pitches where, when you did them? Uh, the, the, actually, for me, and, and my colleague may be different, but for me, I was out of my comfort zone. You know, when I've gone pitching to customers or I've done, you know, talks at seminars or, or you know, days or whatever, I'm in control. I'm the expert. I've got the knowledge. Yeah. So it was that out vulnerable. Of zone. Yeah, absolutely. You get asked questions that you don't know the answers to. So then self-doubt creeps in. Especially in situations like that. Yeah, those early doors. And, and then that self-doubt then, or oh, do I really want to do this? Should I be doing this? Two million quid's a lot of money, mm. you know? So what was really helpful the the fact that the founders were involved and all the way through you're really open with information you know if you're going to do an mbo you've, you've got to have access to all the intel you've yeah because yeah, it's in their interest the data. so if any if any it of that is, is feeling difficult I've, I've, then it's like a red flag for yeah sure. i've heard some horror stories and and the problem is you you find things that you didn't know about yeah because because you didn't have access or it wasn't in your remit to to worry about it before you know, we, I was really lucky. Wallace Hines has always been pretty open, pretty transparent business, you know, and, and the MD was 
I think his preference was certainly to do an MBO over an external sale because of legacy, because of some of the stuff that you talked about. Some of the other founders, maybe, maybe not, because, you know, getting getting half a million quid to, to stick in your bank account and say, ta was it's an, a nice reward for 30 years' work. Okay, so in, in terms of that then, so I guess let's just try and, again, hindsight is a great thing, which is what's great about this podcast. So let's just, I would try and get your advice for people that might be going on this like pitching journey then. So if, I, if I've done my due diligence, I've hopefully really understood what we need to be raising. I've, I'm working with founders that are being cooperative. They give me all the information that I need. Like if you were to speak to Matt before he went on that pitching journey, what, what advice would you give him to hopefully maybe just get more options, get more out of those pitching opportunities that meant you had different options to potentially achieve the MBO, get the investment. What, what advice would you give yourself and, and people that would start that? I'd, for, for ours, because, because it was retained and continue, you know, we'd have, and, and some of the verticals that you see behind me and some of the, before we were just recruiters and we didn't, we didn't put ourselves in the shoes of the buyer enough to lay it out, to have virtual, so they could see what they're buying. When you're buying a recruiter, typically you're, well, lots of businesses, you're buying goodwill. I, I you just got to make sure you put your, yourself in the shoes of the buyer or the investor and be, and ask those stupid questions of yourself. Kick out presumption. What does that mean? How does it mean it? Could you, we should have gone and pitched to our wives, our mates, People who don't know about recruitment, but 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 are in decent jobs to understand it, so that if they don't get to, it, then double check that that presumption. If yeah, absolutely. If they get the proposition, if you know, and we all know commercial people, right? Yeah. Uh, so if they can understand the commercial proposition, then you're a, a lot better prepared. Um, it's not that we didn't know it. What we didn't know was what the other person didn't know, and that that's what that's what killed us in the first couple. I say killed us. It, you know, they were very because I think because of the transparency, the humble humility, and the genuine nature of what we were trying to do. Actually, definitely two, three, definitely two of the major major banks were really helpful. You know, they yeah, pushed yeah. back. Need to know this. This is how you break it down. This is, and they, you know they work with us to then go again. Yeah, what ended up being the most valuable part of the business. Like, or part of that pitch, or like, I know there may not just be one thing, but like what, because I think that, like you were saying, it's a recruitment business. So I think obviously you might tell me it's the retain piece, but I don't know, because it's a perm business, it is more difficult from what I've learned and the conversation I've had. So what ended up being the part that these investors were like, that's really good, or you felt like was one, like the lead domino to go, you know what, this is actually something we would consider. And then I'll ask you a question after, but that that's the first thing that comes to mind. Like what ended up being like the really core things that really got these people excited about the investment once they understood the retain piece absolutely that was that was key because again the presumptions around perm and how the payment structures work was was critical because it's about cash flow because we haven't got contract when you're buying a business that doesn't make anything it's it's all goodwill and the laptops are worth x as we found out the building wasn't involved and we're in a, a beautiful old vicarage that was worth x you know, that turn, you know, there's, there's no assets particularly. So I'm asking for a big chunk of cash for goodwill, really. So getting across the retain piece, how it worked, introducing some of the PSLs that were on, which is, uh, you know, and how that historical placements work. But it was, it was really, 
I think the retain piece was the only because it, because perms is really challenging, really really challenging. Yeah, yeah. To, to sell yeah, as a business, it, it devalues it. It devalues yeah. it massively. Cool. So the next thing then, which I guess segues into like how things played out and uh, all of that, coming to sort of the end here. But this is what we want to do, right? We want to go. This would be so helpful for people. So, so thank you for like sort of being open and sharing all this. So then if you're pitching to me and I'm looking to, yeah, fund this MBO, obviously then you need to be communicating in a quite sort of clear way, like how I'm then going to make X back. What was the strategy around that? How are they going to make their money back? Uh, so it was pitched over a period of time and it was uh, linked to profitability, obviously, again, like, like any sale. It was linked to future investment and growth and being able to achieve some of the things we wanted to in, in the timescales. Uh, we didn't get any offers from the banks um, okay. because we, we fell through the cracks. Yeah, they were looking to either lend more to capital equipment businesses or, or they were dishing out a lot of sub-million pounds. And it, it just wasn't – we were offered a million pounds by the bank, but it wasn't enough to get a controlling stake, so it wasn't worth it. Yeah, And we had uh, one PE and one VC offer, um, and we rejected both of them both the first one because of uh, can't quantify gut feel but i it just didn't feel right didn't, didn't feel, right. feel right and i thought this this it's just you not, got you got to listen to that not using yeah. the same language we're not you know, it's yeah like, and the other one the payment terms were horrific it would have took us to the wall and we didn't feel that we felt that we'd lose some of our heritage and our integrity we don't have so the only KPI a consultant has at Wallace Hind is the number that they've got to achieve over the year. That's it. If you do that with one placement, one phone call, happy days. Take the rest of the year off. I don't care. Uh, if they do a million phone calls and a million placements of a pound each, well, you know, you're going to work hard, but fine. We just felt that we'd lose that element because we'd have to drive. So, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to have any give at all. It would be black and white. Yeah, we turn into one of those corporations that we didn't want to be so yeah, yeah. we ended we ended up re rejecting the offers we got and the proposition that we actually went with was one similar to one similar to accountants and solicitors how they get how they do it okay which is where the, the business effectively buys itself over a um, a five-year period right right just just talk to me about that in layman's time sorry what, what do you mean yeah uh, so we created so wallace hind selection Limited is a brand new organization that started on the 5th of July. Uh, we purchased Wallace Hind Selection LLP uh, for a, a nominal figure, which was uh, yeah. uh, chucked across the room. Which is the money you raised or not? No, oh, no, no, this no, is, no, no, this no. is okay, a sorry, yeah. nominal... Got it. Just, just to like, so it's all the paperwork. Changing your, think so. change in your pocket, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because it's a sale. Yeah. And then you sign... Uh, we've signed, so we've, we've got it lock, stock and barrel for that nominal fee. It's a bit how it's sometimes how football clubs are sold. Uh, so we acquire all the good stuff and all the bad stuff, creditors, debtors, what have you. And then we've signed personal loan agreements with the founders to make payments to them based on a set of criteria over the next five years. Got it. And that's, and then that's the money that you went and that's the money that you raised. And that's the money that, so part of that is the money. So there's no... In, in this model, you, you've got no outside investment to answer to. You've only got yourselves because it's an agreement between the new company owners to, and those founders as individuals, as personal individuals. That's them, really, because they don't get a big payout day one. Got it. And if you don't mind me asking, like, what, what happens if you don't hit some of those things? What would happen? Would it, would it be like a cost in, on you? and the The contract's 93 pages. 
wrong. <laughs> So, okay, fair. So, so like there, maybe so like there the are some, thing. So, well, look, you know, it, it's, they can for. So we've got a, a trigger point, a, a profit trigger point that at the minute we make X amount of profit, then that uh, the the next X amount of figure goes towards paying them. And, it, and it's a, a set fee. If we want to pay more, we can. A bit like any personal loan that you have as a consumer. Yeah. If you want to pay more, you can. If we fall below that figure and have a tough year, we want to pay less, then we sit and have a board meeting and, and talk about it. They can force through their sum, but if they force through a sum that bankrupt us, they don't get payments in year two, yeah, three, yeah, four, okay, and five. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, yeah, so it's still quite collaborative. It's still yeah, quite. Oh God, yeah, absolutely. And and um, you know, so one of the three is retired. Uh, like I say, um, the other two are still here, but one one's retiring probably in April, and then the last guy will stay for another probably two years because he loves recruitment. Call it. So yeah, definitely collaborative. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, I love that. And then, so main positives, I guess, high level for them is, yeah, they're not just getting one sort of hit. It's over a period of time, um, which I guess is a nice thing for them. Tax-free earnings of some some nice figures year on year yeah. for the next five years. Benefit for you is well, the benefit to us is no, we've got no no pressure from a from a bank or a VE or a, a sorry a P or a VC. You know, well, I suppose they are, but because they're still in the business, they can they've got visibility of what's going on. That might change in three or four years when you know they're just coming to the board meetings, but they've still got a. Uh, a vested interest in the interest in the you guys to do what, yeah exactly yeah exactly yeah. and that's key so so who who put up the funds then was it a so the so the business does so the but the funds oh okay so the, so because if we fail and i'm i'm hanging on to a large table of wood right and i'd say you know if yeah. everybody fails if we fail nobody gets paid so you know this is a massive leap of faith for them in doing it this way. But their alternative was they got uh, they got two external offers to to, to buy. Uh, one was a, a low ball, which they decided to reject. And the other, the three of them actually felt a bit like I felt about the, the VC and said, this is going to strip it and kill it. All right. And that, that didn't sit right with them. And and that's a testament to, to their, and, and who could blame, you know, if you put your, your life into 30 years into something, and then you got your payout and you left. Some people will care about what happens afterwards, but some people will take their money and run. Uh, we were lucky that they were the former. Okay, so just to make this crystal clear, then, then we'll wrap up and just find out what the new chapter, what you're excited by. So like, just I just want to make sure I understand this. So basically, they're getting that payout, which everything that you've agreed over five years. So actually you didn't actually take any external investment. This is all driven by Wallace Hind producing X each year over the five years. But what you've agreed is those founders will get X per year. And once all of that hits, then you'll then become the majority shareholder. Or the, yeah, they will no longer be the majority uh, well, shareholders. So because they are, because the way we've driven the contract, I'm the majority shareholder of Wallace Hind right. Selection Limited. It's just that liability, there are liabilities, there are debtors Look. we've got. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I th so the day I signed that contract, because of the stake that I've got, I was actually saying, yes, I now own fifty percent of a, a one point six million pound debt. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Get in. <laughs> but, Come on. So, so, but but that that's right. Yeah. What I just yeah. explained. So then yeah. Okay. Cool. Got it. So there's no external investment. There's no 
my the, the people that I have to report to, my board, so to speak, or my investors are the people I've worked with and employed me for the last 17 years. So talk to us about the next chapter, mate. What what have you got on, like, how are we taking Wallace Heim forward? What are you excited about? What was uh, uh, Well, I was crapping myself all the way money. through COVID. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, well, you have to make the money. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we've got to. And, you know, the difference is these guys had this this picture or the ceiling of 2 million and, and then the, and then the balloon got deflated when we got there or got popped and stuff. I want to do three, four, five, ten. Uh, th- there's no limit to it. What the last couple of years has proved that there, you know, you don't have to be, we are in a beautiful old building, but we don't have to be, you know, we can have, you don't need multiple locations like these corporate high streets who have, you know, a hundred locations and then have consultants fighting, you know, you can have different sectors, different, I mean, I'm working on a job in Asia, for goodness sake, and it's just a time zone. So you, the, the, it's limitless. You know, I want to grow our, first, our, our target for that five years. is 50 people and 5 million. Love it. Limitless. I, I can't, can't get that beyond that at the minute, but, you know, we want to we wanna grow. We want more of these, you know, every function you can think of. And something that I've said to the team here and, and, uh, the new starters that we've got coming on board in the next few weeks is that I was given this amazing opportunity. If in 10 years time, you know, I'll pass that down. Now, if, if, you know, somebody comes along and wants to offer me an awful lot of money to buy the place, then then maybe that's different. My goal at this point is to, is to pass it forward and do exactly what these guys have done for me, but I, I need the people to do that. And it won't be a, a 20 person team and, and a couple of million quid. It will be 50, a hundred We'll have Hishim as our podcast director <laughs> of uh, of recruitment excellence, but that's my point. There, there's no ceiling, and yeah, I want to and I no want to get people into this business that that think, you know, it's commercially it's got to be right. We're not just obviously chucking money at stuff, but you know, come up with an idea, want it. I sat in every single meeting with my bosses from the day I started. That you know, what's next? I want to do more. I want to be more involved. And, and that's what I want from people. And not everybody's like that, which is great. You need people who are a thing, but just, just own what, what you want and, and don't, don't set yourself a ceiling. No, I love it. Well, um, Matt, honestly, thank you so much for sharing that. I, th- I think that will, that would be so insightful for so many people which is why I was so excited to record this conversation with you and really excited to, to see where it is in uh, the next few years and I absolutely lo- love your mindset I think uh, kudos to you mate on like I, I, as I'm sure you've been around those conversations I'm sure many people at Wallace Hind early on were down the pub going I'm gonna own this company one day or I'm gonna be this <laughs> Maybe. And, that. and and you've uh, you've made it happen mate and I know it probably feels like it's just starting it's just beginning again but it's it's really exciting and really appreciate you uh sharing that all with us and i know obviously you, you're always keep, uh, happy to chat to people if they may be going through a similar thing on a similar journey so yeah definitely connect with matt on on linkedin if, if this is a conversation that you'd really like to have with matt but yeah c- congrats mate and, and excited to see how it all uh, unravels yeah no absolutely well keep in touch and uh, watch this space that's it 
Well done on making it to the very end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career. Like always, if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests, then please get in touch with me. The best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Send me a message. What would you love me to cover with future guests? If you have enjoyed the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform. That will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms. And we'll be back next week with a new episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast.